Hello and welcome to this afternoon's Living Writers Reading. Early in Mohsen Hamid's novel, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, the narrator tells the story of going to Greece with a group of friends from Princeton. After dinner one evening, they take turns revealing their dream for the future. The narrator, Chingais, says that he hopes one day to be the dictator of an Islamic Republic with nuclear capability. <laughs> Nearly everyone is shocked, except for one person, the girl with whom Chingais is not surprisingly falling in love. She's the only one who gets the joke. That moment hangs over the entire novel, which is composed as a dramatic monologue, an unusual form that invites comparison to Shahrazad and to Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Long after you turn the last page, you are likely still to be asking yourself, was the whole thing an elaborate hoax? And if so, was I in on it, or was I the stooge? Mr. Hamid's reluctant fundamentalist arrived in 2007 to great acclaim, quote, an elegant and chilling little novel, said the New York Times, in comparisons to the work of other great writers, among them Dostoevsky, Nabokov, and Ishiguro. Like many enduring works of fiction, it's a fertile hybrid that resists easy labels. Even so, here are a few. The Reluctant Fundamentalist is an immigrant's coming-of-age story, a rags-to-riches-to-rags <coughs> story, a tragic love story, a post-9-11 political novel, an intellectual thriller, a thriller Mr. Hamid just told our students, where absolutely nothing happens because the fear is already there before you even <coughs> begin. Most of all, it is a virtuoso performance of voice. In book list, Brad Hooper praises, quote, the firm, steady, even beautiful voice that proclaims the completeness of the soul when personal and global issues are conjoined. Born in Lahore in 1971, Mr. Hamid grew up mostly in Pakistan in the time of a brutal dictatorship, the Soviet-Afghan War, and, as he has noted in interviews, an inflooding of heroin and Kalashnikovs. He was educated at Princeton and at Harvard Law School. Afterward, he worked for several years as a management consultant in New York City. His first novel, Moth Smoke, was published in 2000 to wide praise, including a New York Times review by Jhumpa Lahiri, who was one of our recent guests. These two novels, Moth Smoke and The Reluctant Fundamentalists, have garnered many awards, including the Annisfield Wolf Book Award, the Asian American Literary Award, and listing among the notable books of the year in the New York Times. The Reluctant Fundamentalist was a finalist for the Booker Prize and has been, at last count, translated into 24 languages. Mr. Hamid's journalism has appeared in Time, The New York Times, The Guardian, The Independent, the Paris Review. After leaving New York, he lived for a time in London and now makes his home in Pakistan. <coughs> for the past couple of days, Jane Pynchon and Tess Jones and I have been worriedly checking Mr. Hamid's flight schedule against the headlines about rising tensions between the US and Pakistan. Among ourselves, we've made some uneasy jokes of our own. Had we been able to speak to the TSA, we would have liked to say, as Chingiz does to his unnamed American interlocutor, you should, quote, not imagine that all Pakistanis are potential terrorists, just as we Pakistanis should not imagine that you Americans are all undercover assassins. From the novel's very first question, excuse me, sir, but may I be of assistance, to its last, but why are you reaching in your jacket, sir? The reluctant fundamentalist makes an eloquent case against what Mr. Hamid has called, quote, belligerent simplicity. The novel urges us to think more intelligently and more courageously than the headlines, to move beyond the binaries of us versus them, Islam versus Christianity, East versus West. 
In an interview, Mr. Hamid has said that the novel tries to hold up a mirror to the reader and say, look, you're complicated. The way you are reading this is complicated, and the characters are complicated. That is the world. We are so grateful to Mr. Hamid for doing what all great artists and writers do, by allowing us to inhabit for a short while his fictive world and to live inside the skin of his character he paradoxically deepens our capacity for empathy and for engagement with this real world. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction and uh, thank you for having me. Uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here. I actually flew in early from Pakistan, so I, I missed the latest headlines. Wasn't, there's no risk of being caught up, but um, uh, it, it, what I for my turn to come up, and uh, when it came up, because uh, I come to America often, the you know the border control officer scroll down through his notes of you know what previous border control officers had written down and and sort of looked up at me and smiled and said uh, um, so they've optioned it to make it a movie how's that coming along <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and i said you know well, you're still it's really slow the movies you never know if they're going to happen or not and he said okay and so have you ever had combat training in afghanistan and, <laughs> and he, you know his heart wasn't in it i could tell but uh, <laughs> Uh, but he went through the motions, and um, uh, uh, so it. it, it, it uh, but that aside, the trip here was, was was very pleasant, and it's 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 very nice to be here. And thank you uh, for inviting me to come. I think I'll speak a little bit about myself and and how I became a writer, um, and then read to you mainly from my second novel, The Rotten Fundamentalist, and and leave some time uh, at the end for for questions. Just so I'm sh uh, sure about the timing. When what time do we are we going to wrap up? Uh, after that sort of oh there's no okay fine <laughs> and then fasten your seat belt it's going to be a long <laughs> long flight um, the the uh, um, my as a writer my mother recently showed me a a, um, a, a small notebook uh, when I was a kid my my dad uh, who was a university professor, is a university professor still, when I retired uh, in Pakistan, he uh, came to America uh, to do his PhD in California and he brought my, uh, uh, my mother and myself with him. And so my mother was working at an early you know, Silicon Valley firm um, and if of course we knew it was going to happen in Silicon Valley, we would never have gone back to Pakistan and she would have gotten stock options and we'd be fabulously wealthy, but we didn't know that at the time. And so my dad was, um, uh, you know, the graduate student around the house. And so he would make my peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and popcorn and, and we'd watch cartoons together in the afternoon. And, um, um, and later when my sister was born, then my mother, uh, we moved back to Pakistan, my mother became the main uh, uh, parent at home. My father was, was usually the one out at work. So my mother was quite delighted to discover these um, notebooks and their stuff when we moved back from California to Pakistan when I was nine years old. And in it was um, one of my early short stories, uh, my, I think my earliest short story, illustrated um, with stick figures and, and, and horrific, horrific spelling. And um, it, uh, it was a, it was a, a, a cosmic... Uh, galactic, you know, space combat odyssey. <laughs> um, uh, and really, I think it informed all of my later work. <laughs> uh, uh, and so I'd written, yeah, I, was, I, I clearly had seen Star Wars not long before, and it had a, had a lasting impression on me. But um, uh, I uh, always had a, a very rich, imaginary world, in the sense that I was the kind of kid who uh, you know, when it rained and the lawn outside my grandfather's house would be sort of semi-submerged, I would go out and hop on the you know, bench and imagine that it was a boat and then I would climb up on a tree and think I was in a mountain and I would, you know, I think lots of kids do that and the difference maybe between me and some other kids is that I never really stopped doing it and I do it for a living 
today. Um, because, because for me, uh, being a novelist and, and playing those sorts of games that we all play as children are, are actually related activities. It's, it's you know, creating imaginary worlds that, that I inhabit for years at a time when I'm making them. And I'm not sure why I do this or what compels me to do this, but it is, um, it's something I really need to do because when I'm not doing it, um, I feel myself getting unhappy. Something in who I am works itself out through writing fiction. And I didn't actually start writing fiction, um, except for those early you know, short stories, uh, until I was about 18 years old and I came to college in the States. And I was at Princeton and there was a creative writing program there and I, I uh, applied for a workshop taught by Joyce Carol Oates. And, um, and I just you know, fell in love with uh, writing fiction. And, and uh, Joyce Carol Oates was a, was a remarkably uh, brutal um, uh, instructor at times. I mean, she, she um, could be very tough, but she was also uh, 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 just a superb uh, teacher who really, really took a lot of time in her students. And, and uh, I then, in my senior year, I took another workshop with Toni Morrison, who was teaching a long fiction class. And I, um, uh, I wrote the first draft of what would become my first novel, Moth Smoke, in that class. And uh, for me, the important thing of those classes wasn't so much what they taught me, although they did teach me things. Um, and, uh, but as a writer, you, know, you, you can be taught by reading books. So all of the greatest professors in the world um, are in every bookstore and library. But uh, it was that being in proximity to writers like that and having them read my work and talk to me about it, I think was the first time that I began to imagine that this was a possible occupation, that actually I could do this too. Um, you know, I think, I think taking the classes was, um, once I'd taken them and, and spent time with these people, I could imagine being a writer, which I'd never really imagined before. But even then, coming from Pakistan, the idea of making a living from writing fiction seemed impossible. So I went to law school and, um, and worked for many years to pay off my loans from law school and, and, and whatnot. Um, and along the way, that first draft I wrote for Toni Morrison's course, I revised and revised and revised and spent about seven years revising. And eventually became this book, Moth Smoke. Um, and Moth Smoke uh, was published in, in 2000. And it's a story of a man in Pakistan who um, is an ex-banker. He loses his job, falls in love with his best friend's wife. Um, uh, and you know, as tends to happen when that happens, it doesn't end particularly well. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a story about a you know, pot-smoking urban dude who becomes a heroin addict. Um, and for me, I wrote it in the 1990s at a time when I was reading a lot of fiction, but I wasn't seeing the world that I grew up in, Lahore, you know, a very urban, contemporary world where, as a young man, you know, I, I knew people who did drugs, and uh, I myself, in fact, shall we say, had a less than, than, than entirely pure youth. And, um, and you know, the guns were everywhere um, because of the Afghan war, a lot of weapons flooded into the city, and, and the sort of sleepy, town that my parents had grown in, up in transformed itself into a, you know, uh, sort of a, a, a much rougher contemporary <laughs> urban uh, uh, society. And, and I, I hadn't read uh, portrayals of, of, of this world that spoke to where I came from. And I think a big part of my first, the desire to write this first novel was to write about Pakistan, uh, or this aspect of Pakistan. And in a way, I set out, since I had lived about half my life in America and half in Pakistan, my first novel was kind of an exercise in writing about displaced Pakistan from eyes that had become somewhat Americanized. And, um, and my second novel, which I'll read from in just a second, uh, was the reverse. It was, after, it was really an attempt to write about America in a way with eyes that were still somewhat Pakistani. So this is the first one, this is Moth Smoke. Uh, from close to the beginning, and this is what it sounds like. Steadying the steering wheel with my knees, I pull the last unbroken cigarette out of a battered pack of flakes. There are trees by the side of the road, but only on one side, and it's the wrong side, so their shadows run away from me in long smiles that jump over boundary walls and grin at each other 
while I bake in my car like a snail on hot asphalt. Knees turned the wheel left, then right, steering around an ambitious pothole, a crack aspiring to canyonhood. Fingers twist the barrel of the cigarette, loosening the tobacco, coaxing it into a sweaty palm, rubbing the flake between thumb and forefinger until it's almost empty. Eyes flick up and down, watching the road through the arc the steering wheel cuts above the dashboard, foot gentle on the accelerator. Slide the ashtray out and tip half the tobacco in. Take the compass I've had longer than I've had this car, which is a long time, and spear the hash on one blackened end. Left hand holds the tobacco in its palm and the compass in its fingers. Right hand grips a plastic lighter while his thumb spins the flint. Sparks, no flame. Sparks, no flame. Then a light, and when the blue fire licks the hash, a sweet smell with a suddenness that's almost eager. Crumble the hash into the tobacco. Crush it. Break it. Feel the heat telling nerves and fingertips to pass on the message of a little hurt. Knead it. Mix it thoroughly. Hold empty flake in mouth by its filter. Suck and refill. Pack against a thumbnail. Tip, tip, tip. Repeat. Tip, tip, tip. And twist the end shut. Incisors grab a bit of filter. Pull it out. Gently. Like a bitch lifting a pup. Tear off a strip to let the smoke through. Reinsert the rest to hold open the end and keep things in their place. I light up while rubbing the hash and tobacco residue off my hand and onto my jeans. Rolling while rolling, solo, and baking while baking in the heat. It helps kill time on long afternoons, and I haven't traveled very far, but I know that no place is afternoons longer than this place, Lahore, especially in the summertime. Two drops of visine and I'm set. And that's how it begins. And, um, and when Mott's Milk was published in, in, in 2000, at that time in Pakistan, um, you know, a lot of the things that are in this novel, drugs, sex, adultery, uh, etc., um, you know, were uh, semi-taboo topics. And, and so my mother, for example, was a bit concerned. She said, you know, you've written this book and it's going to be published and who knows how people will react and, you know, is it safe? Um, it turns out, well, so far anyway, that it was, you know, very safe. I mean, there wasn't any kind of uh, um, violent backlash or whatever to this novel. It became kind of a cult, uh, 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 cult reading uh, choice among uh, lots of young urban Pakistanis. But it didn't, it didn't result in the kind of backlash that you might, one might associate, even I might have thought that Pakistan would elicit. And it taught me something, which is that, um, you know, the preconceptions of what, what's out there, you know, what you can say and what you can't say, oftentimes you don't know. Um, and in my, you know, the, the Salman Rushdie uh, satanic verses affair had happened uh, uh, just a couple of years before I began this book, and it was about a decade before I finished the book. And so my Indian publisher, for example, was concerned that, oh, this book set in Pakistan, there could be riots. But of course, that, you know, there weren't. And, and it, it taught me that, um, you know, as, as one begins to navigate, you know, what are the things that are permissible to say and what are not, what's not permissible to say? Um, or what are the things which, if you were to say them, uh, would involve a, a, a choice uh, regarding personal safety that you're not prepared to make? And in my own mind, I started to think that what defines that space, actually, tends to be... Um, uh, not so much that you write about things that seem uh, counter to what society holds uh, to be right or wrong in a place like Pakistan, but rather that there's certain symbols. If you touch certain symbols, um, you can get into trouble. In other words, you can write about people having sex or people being atheists or whatever, but if you are to say that this religious text or this prophet or this you know, figure um, uh, is something that you want to mock, that tends to evoke the kind of violent reaction uh, in people. And for me as a writer, um, that's something that I kept in the back of my mind. Because it's, you know, it's well and good to say that everybody can write whatever they want, we have freedom of speech, and we do. But one thing which you learn living in a place like Pakistan is that words have power. Um, when you say certain things, reactions happen. And that is both terrifying as a writer because you never know, you know, will I wake up the monster? 
will something I say result in, in that kind of a, a backlash? But it also means, the good side of it is it means that words matter and books matter. Because if people are actually going to get this upset about it and want to kill you, then surely that means that books can do something. And, and so for me, as a writer, I've, I've tried to find and navigate a space where I avoid you know, that kind of situation where I have to go into exile or not live in Pakistan, but still say um, what it is that I believe and think. And, and I feel in many ways um, a kinship with uh, uh, writers throughout the ages have done exactly that. So in, in Mott Smoke, the title of this novel, um, is, is a metaphor, is an image that comes from the idea of a moth circling the flame of a candle. And uh, in, in the uh, Muslim mystical tradition called Sufism, uh, the, the idea of the relationship between the human being and the divine and God is the, is the notion that, that God is, um, that, that unity can be achieved between a human being and God. It's, it's a similar call it theology, philosophy, um, to many other mystical traditions like the Zen tradition or like Jewish existentialism. Or, and, and the idea is that the soul of the human being loves God so much, loves the universe from which it comes so much that it doesn't mind extinguishing itself and rejoining that universe. In other words, death no longer has a fear. And this is not the same, by the way, metaphor for death as the you know, if you kill a bunch of people and die in the process, you get 40 virgins in paradise. That's a very different notion. This is, this is a, a um, no reward awaits you, um, but uh, you are like a moth drawn to this flame because you are of the universe and you long to return to the universe. Therefore, don't fear this life and fear your inevitable, eventual death. Um, in that context, uh, what every Sufi poet riffs on at one point or another, is, the, is, this, is this image of the, because throughout Muslim history, it's been um, highly provocative to come out and just say what I've said to you, that you know, human beings and gods are one, etc. Um, instead, what people have, have said are, they have, they have masked that notion inside poetry and, um, and metaphor. So they talk about the love of a uh, moth for a candle, or the longing of a flute from the bed of reeds from which it was once cut. And every time it makes a sound and it's blown, that flute is crying out for the reeds uh, that it was cut from. And for me, Moth Smoke, my first novel, was um, uh, an attempt to uh, incorporate a bit of that tradition, that thousand-year-old tradition, into, into my fiction. And instead of thinking about the love of the candle, of the moth for the candle, it's circling this flame and coming in and being consumed, um, I said, well, what happens after that? You know, what if you have achieved the beloved? What if you have this dream of a homeland for Muslims called Pakistan, and now you have that homeland for Muslims called Pakistan? What if you want your beloved and you wind up having an affair with your beloved? You know, what next? Um, and so moth smoke is an investigation of that, really, of, of the dream of Pakistan that already exists, a love story that's already been consummated, um, a sort of you know, uh, uh, secular postmodern riff on the, on the idea of, of the moth and the, and, the, um, and the candle. And after writing this book, I then um, thought, OK, what do I want to do next? And, and one thing which I decided was I wanted something very different from what I did before. Um, I, 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 Maltz Mook is written in multiple voices, different characters come forward. It is, um, it's told as a trial in which you, the audience, the reader, are cast as the judge, and different characters will come and present their points of view on what happened to you. And so I said, I don't want to do this again. I want to write something that's very stripped down, very bare, straight up narrative, um, and uh, uh, I don't want there to be any drugs. I don't want there to be, and so I sort of self-consciously tried to make an anti-moth smoke. And also I thought, well, I've written a book about Pakistan, but I live in America now. And uh, surely there's something strange about continuing to write about Pakistan while I live in America. I need to write about America. So with these constraints that you know, I would write something very different from moth smoke about America, I set to work on my next novel. And this is the year 2000. And by the summer of 2001, I'd written a very slender parable in a third person 
a sort of fabulous story about a Pakistani man who works in corporate America. And uh, in July 2001, uh, when I finished the draft and the character sort of, you know, he works in corporate America, decides he can't stay, grows a beard and goes back home to Pakistan. I showed it to my agent and he said, you know, it's kind of a bit slow. And, um, and this whole thing about this Muslim guy, you know, working in corporate America, but he feels, you know, this tension with America. I don't really buy it, you know. Uh, what is this Muslim American, you know, tension thing? And, um, and then, of course, you know, world events intervened and September 11th happened a couple of months later. And a few months after that, my agent said, you know, that novel you're working on. <laughs> and, uh, but at that point, what had happened was the novel had been completely torpedoed by current events. So my sort of simple, gentle fable um, now looked like an introduction to September 11th. And uh, even though it took place the year before September 11th, it ends in July 2001, <coughs> anybody reading it would say the end and then September 11th happens. And for two or three years afterwards, I continued to work on this novel and I kept trying to um, set it before September 11th. Um, I abandoned the fable form and I tried writing it in a different form, um, which was uh, a, a sort of American accented first person. So it would sound like um, you know, I was telling a class earlier today, it sounds a bit like um, John Grisham's The Firm, you know, for the first one-third. So, so Tom Cruise's character is at, you know, law school, gets this amazing job and goes to work at the firm, but it turns out the firm is sort of dangerous and, you know. Um, so I was telling that story for the first one-third and then instead of going where Grisham goes in the firm, I would go to a very, very different space. But that didn't really work and a number of other, other attempts didn't work and eventually, as I wrote, rewrote and this novel many times, I mean, I wrote over a thousand pages of manuscript for this little 180-page book, and uh, I wrote several different novels on the exact same idea or plot um, before coming up with this one. And, uh, and what it became in the end was a dramatic monologue. And uh, the Pakistani character, the main character, I decided, would tell his story to an American or presumably an American, a character we never hear from, who's just sort of sitting next to him at a cafe, and he will tell this story. And what that would allow me to do would, um, I would be able to capture this relationship between the Pakistani guy and the American guy, and the mutual suspicion that's there, um, and play with that. And so, I'll, so th those of you who haven't read, I'll just read the, the way the novel begins so you understand what I'm talking about. This is how the novel starts. Excuse me, sir, but may I be of assistance? Ah, I see I have alarmed you. Do not be frightened by my beard. I am a lover of America. I noticed that you were looking for something. More than looking, in fact, you seem to be on a mission. And since I am both a native of this city and a speaker of your language, I thought I might offer you my services. How did I know you were American? No, not by the color of your skin. We have a range of complexions in this country, and yours occurs often among the people of our northwest frontier. Nor was it your dress that gave you away. A European tourist could as easily have purchased in Des Moines your suit with its single vent and your button-down shirt. True, your hair, short-cropped, and your expansive chest, the chest, I would say, of a man who bench-presses regularly and maxes out well above 225, are typical of a certain type of American. But then again, sportsmen and soldiers of all nationalities tend to look alike. Instead, it was your bearing that allowed me to identify you. And I do not mean that as an insult, for I see your face as hardened, but merely as an observation. Come, tell me, what were you looking for? Surely at this time of day, only one thing could have brought you to the district of Old Anarkali, named, as you may be aware, after a courtesan immured for loving a prince. And that is the quest for the perfect cup of tea. Have I guessed correctly? Then allow me, sir, to suggest my favorite among these many establishments. Yes, this is the one. Its metal chairs are no better upholstered. Its wooden tables are equally rough. And it is, like the others, open to the sky. But the quality of its tea, I assure you, is unparalleled. You prefer that seat, with your back so close to the wall? Very well, although you will benefit less from the intermittent breeze which, when it does blow, makes these warm afternoons more pleasant. And will you not remove your jacket? So formal. 
Now that is not typical of Americans, at least not in my experience. And my experience is substantial. I spent four and a half years in your country. Where? I worked in New York and before that attended a college in New Jersey. Yes, you're right, it was Princeton. <coughs> Quite a guess, I must say. What did I think of Princeton? Well, the answer to that question requires a story. When I first arrived, I looked around me at the Gothic buildings, younger, I later learned, than many of the mosques of this city, but made through acid treatment and ingenious stone masonry to look older, and thought, this is a dream come true. Princeton inspired in me the feeling that my life was a film in which I was the star and everything was possible. And that's how it begins. And, um, and so you have this character, Chinguez, who is speaking to this American character, um, but, or we think he's an American character. But Chinguez never lets us hear what the American says. In other words, the novel has Chinguez reacting to what the American is saying, but we never hear the American. It's like a one-man play where one character is saying their lines and the character is sort of off stage somewhere. And we can imagine what they're saying by the echoes that the main actor is giving us. And what I think that does, um, because I'm somebody very concerned with form, I think, I think that um, the, the formal ways in which a novel is structured is, is hugely important. And, and part of why it takes me so long to write uh, my novels, uh, 14 years for the first two, um, is, is because I never know what the right form is. And I'm trying to solve a puzzle, figuring out what the, what the right form will be. And this form, the dramatic monologue, what I like about it is um, it creates a kind of ambiguity. You know, you don't know who this American is. What is the American saying? What is the American doing there? Can you trust Chinguez's impression of the American? And that ambiguity, that sort of gap, opens up a space that you, the reader, need to fill somehow. And your act of filling in that space, I think, affects the way that you engage with the novel. So in this novel, for example, as, as, as you heard in the introduction, um, you know, it's been called a thriller, but nothing thrilling happens in this book. There's no one who actually, well, I won't tell you the end, but there's no one who actually, you know, gets shot. There's no chase sequence. There's no, you know, exploding automobiles or anything like that. But, but the tension builds and builds and builds and builds. And by the end of it, many readers will feel that somebody's going to kill somebody else. You know, is, is the American going to kill Chinguez? Will Chinguez kill the American? Are they both going to be beheaded by the waiter and his, you know? Um, and I think uh, the reason why it's possible for, to have people feel this about characters, neither of whom have demonstrated anything violent. So we haven't seen the American character do anything particularly, he hasn't killed anyone. The Pakistani narrator, Chinguez, hasn't killed anyone either, as far as we know. But, and we know that most people aren't capable of just kidnapping a random guy they're having coffee with and beheading them. So how do we come to believe that that is possible? And I think the way we come to believe that is, is, an, is a kind of exercise in, in smoke and mirrors, um, which, which the novel engages in, but which also um, our news media uh, uh, and politicians and, and our general culture engage in. You know, so if you remember, for example, the non-existent weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, you know, the, it was all about, well, somebody from Iraq was seen in, you know, Africa where they had uranium and somebody else was in the same town as a guy that was known to consort with Osama bin Laden. And, somebody, and so the innuendo adds up and adds up and adds up and, and so suddenly, you know, Iraq must have weapons of mass destruction. And it's not a purely American phenomenon. You know, media all over the world, in Pakistan, India, the UK, it happens all over the place. And I think it's interesting how it is possible without any fact, but with co you know, connotation, with sort of suggestion, to create the idea that people are ready to kill each other when there's no real evidence for that position at all. Because I don't actually think that most people in the world do want to kill each other despite the fact that if you open a newspaper, it seems that surely everybody on the planet is out to kill the people in the country next door. And, and this form of the novel where these two characters are talking, I think, enables that. And it's worth just pausing as I say that um, and, uh, and telling you, you know, a little bit about how I think novels work um, and, and the novel you know, as a form um, and what's peculiar to it and how I, I think of that as a writer. Um, right now, uh, among the various narrative forms, storytelling forms, uh, the novel is probably uh, among the ones with a, you know, with a, it's certainly a smaller reach than 
than film you know, or television. Most people get their, their storytelling uh, uh, in, in the form of, of, mo of moving images, uh, film, TV series, etc. Uh, the novel is not read by as many people as watch a blockbuster film or, um, or see a, a huge hit TV series. You know, Baywatch is seen all over uh, the world. I mean, so is, I guess Da Vinci Code is probably read all over the world, but, but there is a difference in scale. Um, so the novel can't, can't claim to be the form that has the widest reach or um, uh, the deepest penetration, to use sort of you know, business terms. Um, but, uh, uh, but it does have a different way of engaging with it. When you watch a movie, what you see is um, you know, the main character looks like Brad Pitt because it's being played by Brad Pitt. And, and the music is you know, whatever song it is. And, um, and you know, everything, you actually see a, um, uh, the story that you, are, that, you are, that you are being delivered. When you read a novel, what you see is this. You see squiggles of black ink on pulped wood. And um, the process by which that becomes something similar to a movie in your mind, with characters that look like something and sound like something and feel like something, um, is a process that I think involves a greater degree of co-creation on the part of the reader than a moving picture um, form does. It's not to say one form is better than the other. I'm not trying to make any sort of facile, oh, books are better than movies uh, comparison. I'm just saying that they work differently. So what's happening is, and the reason why two people can see a movie, um, they will disagree about maybe what they've seen, but it's much less common than when two people read a book and then let's say they, they see a movie, um, they will very often totally disagree in how the interpretation of the book comes on the screen. So one person might think, you know, I think that this Lord of the Rings is actually pretty much like I saw Tolkien as being. And the other person will say, you crazy? It's nothing like what the book is. And the reason for that is because you have been the casting director and you've developed the soundtrack and you've done all of that for the book in your head. Um, that process whereby you take these, these letters um, and make uh, a, a story um, and the degree to which you are involved in creating that and how your story is unique to you, the reader, uh, I think is, is, a, is, a, is a place where the novel does have an advantage over other forms. Um, it, it requires you to invent more. Um, you know, if all forms of art are, are relationships, but a novel really is a 50-50 relationship where you know, the writer puts half of it out there and the other half of meaning is, is provided by you. Um, and so if that's true, and if one thing which is particular to the novel is the idea that the reader invents a huge part of what a novel is. Um, then for me, what that suggests as a novelist is that it's interesting to create novels whose meaning depends on the reader inventing things. In other words, in both of my books, or particularly a second book, um, people say, well, what happens after the ending? And, and my answer is always, you know, I don't know. The, the novel, it wasn't meant to be a trick where I know what happens on the next page and you were supposed to guess or not guess. Instead, it was meant to be a building. You know, it's not like my novel, I don't think it was an amusement ride where you sort of strap in, get on it, and you go up and then you go down and you sort of go through a loop and you go through water and you come out the other end. And I can tell you the final thing you saw was this. I think of it more as, a, as an architect, that it's a building designed to allow certain things to happen inside it. You walk into that building, presumably through the front door, but you could start reading in the middle, I guess, but presumably through the front door. And then once you're in there, what you do in there um, is a dance you know, between how the building is structured and what you want to do inside the building. And so, and so for me, um, that's how I think about how novels work, and that's how I try to write them. And the dramatic monologue form, which, which forces you to supply a big part of the meaning for this book, uh, to me is, is, is part of that project, really, um, of, of trying to make my novel do what I think novels can do, uh, which is, um, in fact, I'll tell you a, a funny story. I, I was explaining this exact idea uh, to Richard Ford 
at the Sydney Writers Festival. And, and uh, I'm sure most of you know who Richard Ford is, but he's a very eminent, famous, you know, American novelist. And uh, I, you know, I was a very young, up and coming, you know, maybe not even up and coming, but sort of down and starting, you know, <laughs> uh, Pakistani stroke, lived in America and the UK writer. And the Sydney Writers Festival begins with this thing called the Big Read, where seven, I think, writers read to this huge audience in this massive, I, I don't know where it was, was it the Sydney Opera House? I don't know where it was, but some big venue in Sydney. And it has huge names like Richard Ford and some virtually unknown names like myself at that time. And we were in the green room preparing to go out and I think he was going just before me. And so I was to explain to Richard what I just told you guys. This is how I think novels work and you know, et cetera. You know, do you agree? And he said, no. Um, he said, you know, I, when I write my novels, um, I want the reader to think and feel and see exactly what I want them to think and feel and see. And, and I realized that, of course, there's a huge difference in how people approach books. If, if I, I don't know what he meant by that, of course, but I, what I think he meant is that you know, his idea was his, the task of his writing, of good writing, was to determine the reading of a book such that um, he knew what the reader was feeling, that he had such precision in what he had crafted that the reader was experiencing what Richard Ford intended him to, to, to feel. I, I think that's what he meant by what he said. Um, whereas I thought something very different. I didn't discuss it further with him. I said, you know, once he said, you know, no, actually, I think, then I said, you know, drink and we, <laughs> cheers. And, um, but uh, he, uh, but, but I was thinking about this, and I said, that's, that's, that's funny, because I feel completely the opposite. I, I really think, I don't know what the reader's going to do with this, so I'm going to, it's like, it's, for me, it's more like dancing, right? You know, if you're dancing with someone, yes, you're dancing, and they're dancing, but you can't really predict entirely what the dance, even if you're leading in a dance, you know, you, you, um, it's, it's, it's really two people doing something, and so I, I try to write these novels that are made for that. Um, and uh, so that's not necessarily a, a, a generally agreed upon view of what novels do, but at the moment it's my view and it could, it could change. Maybe when I'm a better novelist and I know more, I'll, I'll, I'll tell somebody else the way Richard Ford told me, no, this is completely idiotic, <laughs> grow up, you know. Uh, but, um, uh, but for the time being, what I've said is what, is what, I, what I think. And, uh, but that said, of course, the novel isn't just a exercise in politics and confronting your worldviews, and it's not just um, you know, a formal experiment that creates a space for interpretation. It is those things as well. It's also a story. Um, I'm a very strong believer that what I do is storytelling, um, fundamentally, and uh, that, uh, that a reader does me the honor of giving me a few hours of their time, and the reason they do so is because I make it worth their while and I make it worth their while by telling them a story, which is what you know, a basic human need is to hear and tell stories. And, and so this story, The Reluctant Fundamentalist, is also a love story. And, uh, and the love story is between the guy, Chingay, is this Pakistani guy who you heard from at the beginning, and uh, this uh, woman who goes to college with him named Erica. And this is very early uh, as they meet. They're, they're in Greece uh, after graduation. He's gotten a sign-on bonus from the company he's joined. And he's off with these fairly rich Princetonians in Greece. And they're on the beach, and this is, this is what happens. I was telling you about the moment when I was forced to stare. We were lying on the beach, and many of the European women nearby were, as usual, sunbathing topless, a practice I wholeheartedly supported, but which the women among us Princetonians, unfortunately, had thus far failed to embrace. When I noticed Erica was untying the straps of her bikini, and then, as I watched, only an arm's length away, she bared her breasts to the sun. A moment later, no, you're right, I'm being dishonest. It was more than a moment. She turned her head to the side and saw me staring at her. A number of possible alternatives presented themselves. I could suddenly avert my eyes, proving thereby not only that I had been staring, but that I was uncomfortable with her nudity. Or I could, after a brief pause, casually move my gaze away as though the sight of her breasts had been the most natural thing in the world. Or I could keep staring, honestly communicating in my way, in this way, my admiration for what she had revealed. 
or I could, through well-timed literary allusion, draw her attention to the fact that there was a passage in Mr. Palomar that captured perfectly my dilemma. But I did none of these things. Instead, I blushed and said, hello. <laughs> she smiled with uncharacteristic shyness, it seemed to me, and replied, hi. I nodded, tried to think of something else to say, failed and said, hello, again. <laughs> as soon as I had done this, I wanted to disappear. I knew I sounded unbelievably foolish. She started to laugh, her small breasts bouncing, and said, I'm going for a swim. But then, as she walked away, she half turned and added, you want to come? I followed her, watching the muscles of her lower back tense delicately to stabilize her spine. We reached the water. It was warm and perfectly clear, round pebbles and a flash of little fish, visible below the surface. We slipped inside. She swam out into the bay with powerful strokes, and then she trod water until I had caught up with her. For a time, we were both silent, and I felt our slippery legs graze each other as we turned the sea. I don't think, she said finally, I've ever met someone our age as polite as you. Polite, I said, less than radiant with joy. She <laughs> smiled, I don't mean it that way, she said, not boring polite, respectful polite. You give people their space. I really like that, it's unusual. We continued bobbing face to face and I formed the impression that she was waiting for me to say something in reply, but words had abandoned me. Instead, my thoughts were engaged in a struggle to maintain a facial expression that would not appear idiotic. She turned and began to swim back to shore, keeping her head above water. I pulled alongside and, claiming victory at last over my cowering tongue, said, Shall we return to town for a drink? To which she replied, with a raised eyebrow and in an accent not normally her own, I would be delighted to do so, sir. And Erica is, is, is you know, half making fun of how Chinggis speaks. Um, the way, the way Chinggis speaks, of course, is, uh, is stylized. And, and the story of how I came to Chinggis's voice is the last thing I'll tell you before we, we stop and we uh, have some questions. But um, I was writing this novel, and I, and I wrote first, as I told you, in, in sort of a third-person, parable-like fable. Um, and then I wrote it again in a, uh, sorry, third person. Then I wrote it again in a first person with sort of an American accent, what I managed to be, imagined to be a 22-year-old American college student's accent. But that, you know, didn't sound uh, like it really worked. And I tried a number of different things. And eventually, I thought, you know, I want to give this guy a voice that sounds like what I think many preconceptions about Islam are. You know, that it's this kind of archaic thing. It comes from the past, it's something ancient about it. It's very formal and sort of strict. And it um, is, you know, kind of off-putting and, and menacing, actually. And so I thought, you know, what's a language that could capture those connotations, you know, that, that sounds like what Islam feels like to many non-Muslims um, thinking about what Islam is? And, and the voice that I found is, is Chinggis's voice. And the place that I found it was uh, in Pakistan and also in India, uh, in, in the British colonial days in the 19th century, a number of private schools were built. And in these private schools that were made mainly for sort of the aristocracy or, or the uh, uh, want-to-be aristocracy, um, they were modeled on British boarding schools at the time. And they, people were taught to speak with a particular kind of formal Victorian English inflection and cadence and rhythm uh, and manner. And, uh, uh, and these schools still exist in Pakistan and India today. And in Pakistan, uh, I know many people who've been to these sorts of schools. Many of my uh, cousins and friends have been to these kind of schools. And it's interesting how some of them pick up this accent uh, and, and hold on to it very tightly. And others sort of, you know, it inflects their accent, but then they go to America, and after five years, they sound like a Texan, and then they go to Brazil, and they wind up sounding like a Brazil. You know, many people have this chameleon-like uh, characteristic, and I'm a bit like that, too. Wherever I live, it begins to affect how I speak. Um, but some people don't do that. They, they take an accent, and they just hold on to it, because it has become part of their identity. And this particular accent, which connotes a kind of class status in Pakistan, um, would be Chinggis's accent. He's a sort of a guy from a well-off aristocratic family who is broke, whose family is on hard times. And so to speak in this way is a way to, despite the appearances, where he doesn't seem to have much money, to, to assert, I am somebody who matters, my family matters, I am someone of consequence. 
And so he asserts this, this, this status by the way he speaks. And that's where the, the voice of the novel came from, and, and that's why he speaks in the way that he speaks. And you know, I could go on and on, but um, I'm, I'm going to stop there and uh, uh, let anybody who wants to run away, run away, and anybody who wants to ask questions, um, let's have a few minutes of, of Q&A. Yes? Mm. I'd really love to know your um, opinion as to what might improve relations between Pakistan and the United States. Well, there's a kind of human answer and then there's a, there's a political answer. And I can give you, I can give you both of them. Um, from the political standpoint, what I think is going on is uh, at the time of partition of Pakistan and India, when the British were giving independence to this ex-colony, they divided Pakistan and India with the, with the exception of a place called Kashmir. And Kashmir was a majority Muslim place that happened to be ruled by a Hindu Maharaja. And the rule at the time of partition was that the Muslim majority places would go to Pakistan, the Hindu majority places would go to India. And independent principalities like Kashmir um, were to be given uh, the right that their rulers could pick. Um, and the ruler of Kashmir dithered and didn't make a choice, really wanted to be independent. And eventually, guerrillas from Pakistan came in. He signed a session to India. India occupied uh, part of Kashmir. Pakistan occupied part of Kashmir. And, um, and that was that. And then the UN said that uh, um, the countries took it to the UN. The UN said, have a plebiscite, let the Kashmiris decide. That plebiscite has never happened for multiple reasons. And regardless of what you think about the right solution for Kashmir, that festering sore has remained for 63 years. And now Pakistan and India remain as, as nations hostile to each other. Out of that hostility, because Pakistan is by far the smaller country, um, there are people in the Pakistani security establishment who have believed that supporting guerrillas and these sorts of you know, uh, extremists and militants um, are a way of, of counterbalancing India's much larger side, size in this dispute over Kashmir. And so when America in the 1980s came to Pakistan and said, let's train a bunch of militants to fight the Russians in Afghanistan, um, and that was a success, and the Soviets were defeated, and then people in the Pakistani security establishment said, you know, wow, if we could beat the Soviets in Afghanistan with these jihadist, uh, you know, mujahideen, um, who are not that different, you know, in many ways from the people who are fighting in Afghanistan now, um, we can do the same thing to India. And they embarked on a very similar policy. And, um, and so that is, the, that is an ongoing situation. And so um, now in Pakistan, there clearly is an ambiguity about the Pakistani state. Forget the average person. I'm talking about the, the government and the, and the military. Their position on militants. They clearly don't want anyone to come and attack America because it would be disastrous for Pakistan. But they also don't want to entirely eliminate these militants because, um, first of all, they would turn on Pakistan. And secondly, because they, they want to use them in the context of counterbalancing India. Meanwhile, of course, there are many things that many Pakistanis believe India is doing well to the Pakistan, and Pakistani Indians think Pakistan is doing to India. It's, it's, it's a mess. But fundamentally, the, the issue of terrorism and militancy in that part of the world, um, I, I think the solution to that is part of a broader Indo-Pak peace, where you know, we go from the current situation to you know, France and Germany, you know, where here you have this ancestral rival, you buried it, you open your borders, you start trading freely, and you say, you know, let's move on. Until you get that, parts of the Pakistani state will continue to support militants. Then what happens is Afghanistan, where effectively um, uh, the Indian security establishment supports the Northern Alliance, and the Pakistani security establishment supports members of the Pashtuns, many of whom are, are Taliban or allies of the Taliban. And American soldiers are caught in the middle of this kind of proxy war between the two things. And then, of course, you have Hamid Karzai, who, you know, um, Bob Woodward reports is, is, is manic depressive and occasionally doesn't take his medication and then starts screaming that he's going to join the Taliban. And his brother, that the New York Times says is one of the biggest drug lords in the world, are the, you know, leaders of this. So it's a, it's a complete mess, really. Um, 
But if we step back from the mess, I don't know how easy, it's probably very difficult to do this, but if we step back from the mess, I think the principles are simple. You know, India and Pakistan need to compromise on Kashmir. Um, they need to establish peaceful relations with each other. And on the back of that, uh, Afghanistan needs to stop being a proxy battleground between the two. Uh, and it needs to find its own political settlement without Indian and Pakistani intervention, and ideally without American troops on the ground either. I think that's where, that if, that if you want to untie this knot, that's how you have to do it. The problem is, of course, nobody's willing to take on this whole thing of Indo-Pak peace, plus Afghanistan, plus, so there are piecemeal solutions, a few more troops here, a bit more of that. But unless you solve this core issue, um, it, it'll, go on, it'll go on and on and on. And uh, so that, for me, is the political part of the answer. Um, the human part of the answer is, I think, uh, something has happened where the world was ripe for a kind of um, anti-globalization philosophy to take root. In other words, people have been migrating and things are changing. You know, you can go to cities in the Netherlands now where yeah, there's almost a majority of, of Muslim immigrants and you can go to parts of America where there's a majority of, of Spanish-speaking people and, you know, uh, these sorts of migrations are taking place. You know, Chinese are moving to Siberia and the Russians are becoming less numerous and, um, you know, the gypsies are moving to France. Um, you know, all these things are going on and, uh, and people are nervous. Um, people don't like the way the world is changing. And, uh, uh, you know, so in this environment of fear, you know, we, have, we really have two options. You know, one is beginning to build a new kind of morality that, that is much more empathy-based than it was before. In other words, saying, look, yes, a lot of people in your town speak Spanish now, but don't be frightened. Actually, there are people just like you for the most part. And maybe some of them are bad guys, but, you know, some other people were bad guys before them. And similarly, in all over the world, you know, one message would be to say, uh, we are getting more and more mixed up with each other, but we needn't fear each other, and let's begin to break all of that down. That's one message. The other message is, you know, our civilization is under threat. And what we're hearing is much more of the our civilization is under threat, uh, which I believe to be false because I mean, there, there isn't a civilization in that sense. You know, what was this civilization we're talking about? But you know, when the Irish came, there was a, a party in America called the Know Nothing Party that basically wanted to you know, throw out the Irish in the late 19th century. And uh, you know, so this has been going on forever and it's happened all over the world, not just in America. And I think, I think what it is is that there is a basic human reaction of fear towards people different from us you know, visibly different. And it comes from the fact that, you know, at one point we evolved in these, you know, small clans where people who looked like you were in your clan and spoke your language, and the people who spoke differently and looked differently weren't in your clan. And if you bumped each other, it could get violent. So the instinct was people not like you, be afraid of them. Um, so it was maybe useful, this instinct, once upon a time. It clearly is not useful in the major world cities of today that you walk down the street and people different from you and you're thinking, you know, is he going to detonate himself on the subway and blow me up? Um, uh, so, so finding ways to disarm that fear, uh, I think, I think are, uh, is critical. Because regardless of whether you think that that project, uh, well, I guess the other way of saying it is, what is the future of the we are in conflict as civilizations project? There is no future of that project because short of multiple holocausts around the world, we cannot restore ourselves to a situation where only Dutch-speaking people live in Holland, you know, and only you know, uh, Muslims live in this country and only Christians. It just can't, unless we wind up slaughtering millions of our fellow human beings, it's not going to happen. So this ideology doesn't actually take us anywhere. And instead, an ideology which says, how do we better learn to manage the increasingly mixed up world that we live in um, is something that we need. And it's not even just an immigration issue. So in Pakistan, for example, you know, um, there are parents who have grown up in villages without television and have moved to the city and whose kids now have internet connections and seem to be working upstairs all night in their room on the computer and their parents are so happy. But really the kids are on Swedish porn sites, you know, <laughs> from, from dusk till dawn. 
Now, imagine the difference between that parent and that child in their outlook of the world. You know, they, they, they might as well be from different civilizations, you know. Um, that speed of change and that degree of change within communities, not just, you know, across communities, uh, is, is what we have to begin to develop ways to speak about, deal with, and disarm as a source of fear. Um, you know, intergenerational fear is huge. Uh, even in America, you see so much politics about you know, benefits for seniors and you know, this and that and the other. Really, there's a, there's a deep fear that maybe the young people won't want to take care of us. Um, and that's not just the case in America. That's the case in Pakistan. It's the case all over the world. Because you know, if you grew up, let's say, illiterate on a farm, and your kid is you know, tech-savvy living in the city, um, and your value systems are so different, how, you know, how do we bridge those things? And I think that's where managing, accelerating change and its impacts on human beings, disarming um, the fear that results by, I, I believe, cultivating powers of empathy, allowing parents to imagine what their kids feel, allowing kids to feel what their parents feel, people from different groups to feel what each other feel. In that direction lies, I, I imagine, a better human solution than what generally we get offered, which is, um, you know, be very scared and uh, try to move back the clocks. It isn't, it isn't going to go back. Anybody else? Or is that it? Sure, happily. Yeah, yeah. So, thank you very much. Thank you.